Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson. I'm Sechil Yilmaz. And today we're thrilled to welcome to the podcast Sarah Rahnama, who's a scholar of French imperial and North African history, currently finishing her doctoral dissertation at Johns Hopkins University. The dissertation is about women's rights debates in 20th century Algeria, and it positions Algerian debates about the women question as part of broader intellectual currents around the world. One of these currents takes what we might call a south-south direction, showing how discussions about gender in Turkey and those in Arabic-speaking North Africa were more closely connected than we might think. So today's episode will focus on discussions of hats and hijabs in interwar Algeria as a way of thinking through some of these transnational connections. Thank you so much for having me. We're so happy to have you here. So Sarah, I wanted to start out actually by just asking you to introduce our actors. So in this case, we're talking about hats and hijabs. Um, what did these look like? Did everybody wear them? Sure. So um, so in terms of hijab, the most dominant form by far is the hike. And um, this is the kind of white uh, cloth. It would be worn, um, draped over the head, covering the whole body, and might be worn in conjunction with a kind of face veil that would cover the bottom half of the face. This is overwhelmingly the dominant style, particularly in cities. Um, but in rural environments, the, the form and styles of the hijab varied much more. Um, women who might have been involved in agricultural work, for example, harvesting olives, you know, picking fruit, things like that, they might be completely unveiled or just have some kind of fabric loosely draped over their head. So there's much more diversity in, in rural spaces. So I love this because it reminds us that the hijab has kind of taken on this epic proportions in the Western press, for example. We often think that it has one face or one look, but actually like women's dress was very varied. There's been a lot of really interesting work work in the African historiography around um, the malafa, other forms of hijab, um, about specifically the question of flexibility and the kind of flexibility that they allow for the wearer that might not be evident in texts about these forms of hijab. So the hike, similarly, because it's um, kind of draped over the individual, depending on how the person is kind of holding the fabric, it might be more or less revealing. You might get a sense of what kind of jewelry they're wearing underneath, maybe some sense of what the clothing underneath might look like. Um, so there's a certain yeah flexibility and um, diversity in the styles that certainly isn't reflected oftentimes when we're reading about uh, some of these forms of hijab. And so then the other subject of today's conversation is the hat or fez or tarbush. So maybe you could just describe for our listeners who might not be familiar, what did that look like in interwar Algeria and who, who was wearing them? You know, if I went out onto the street, would everybody be wearing one? In terms of the hat, there are three dominant forms of headwear. Uh, so the first would be the amama um, or the turban. The second and kind of most overwhelmingly dominant form is the tarbush or the fez. And the third would be the Western-style brimmed hat, which in the press is simply called hat or kuppa. Um So what these like three different kinds of headwears signify in terms of um, class, social status? The amama, for example, is worn often by people who have some sort of affiliation to different religious institutions. So a judge in a Muslim court a uh, teacher at a Quranic school, Muslim reformist leaders. It signified a sort of association to various Muslim institutions. But m most men overwhelmingly would wear the tarbush. 
And that too had a kind of subtle differences that spoke to different social distinctions. So you could purchase it in different shades of red um, and the colors would signify affiliation to particular kind of religious groups. It could have different adornments like tassels and each one of those had their own meaning. So there are kind of subtle ways that that the tarbush too reflected certain distinctions. Great. So I, I'm curious, you know, before we delve into some of the specifics about the hijab and the tarbush um, in the remainder of this podcast, I'm really curious why you think that the I mean, it calls for speculation in some ways. I've been watching too many legal dramas on TV. But, you know, I mean, why it is that these outward demonstrations or practices like such as headwear and clothing and fashion, why these became so such matters of political importance in interwar Algeria? Do you think that this is specific um, to this moment or, you know, should we actually be thinking about what we consider kind of everyday fashion choices as political choices everywhere? That's a fascinating question. Um, I I think that so much of the time, um, these things become political because of the broader context. And there's oftentimes certain key moments that kind of trigger a certain certain political weight or um, symbolic weight to particular items of clothing or methods of comportment. Um, So in this context, in interwar Algeria, the big kind of thing that triggers many of these conversations around the hat is Ataturk's passage of this hat law. Uh, And so much of that has to do with the particularities of the interwar moment. Uh, The press allows for kind of constant reporting on Turkey. There's certain reasons that that was able to have more weight and be carried further um, west into Algeria in the interwar moment that wouldn't have been possible earlier. So that's super fascinating. Here we're getting to some of the kind of transnational connections that we're going to pick up later in the podcast to talk about, you know, sort of how these developments in Turkey resonated across the region and perhaps across the world. But first, I want to get a little bit specific about Algeria. Uh, which is to kind of take the hijab and the harbu- then the tarbush or fez as historical actors. So you bring up a really interesting distinction in your discussion of the hijab uh, as really a matter of that there are kind of two different sides to the debate um, and that the, the sides turn around the question of what is sharia, what is you know required by Islamic law and what is required or, or mandated by custom. So I wonder if you just tell us a little bit more about that um, and sort of what that meant to people. Absolutely. So the dominant form of hijab that you would see would be um, would include covering the the face and the hands. Um, and what happens in the interwar moment is you get more and more commentators noting that actually the Sharia doesn't require the face and hands to be covered. Uh, and so they distinguish between this kind of customary form where the hands and face are covered and the hijab of the Sharia, which allows for the face and hands to be uncovered. Um, and they they kind of argue that this is a really important distinction and this is their way of kind of rescuing the hijab from being this outdated symbol of tradition to something that could be a modern practice. And this becomes a a real reflection of the larger ethos of the moment in terms of the Muslim reform movement. So, um, So within these discussions about hijab, custom often gets depicted as something that is kind of subject to local whims and fancies, which often become more strict than necessary. Uh, And so what you have is all of these commentators really trying to kind of reel the discussion back, push back towards, push it back towards uh, Islamic sources 
and say, you know what, there really isn't a need for for this kind of stricter form of hijab. And actually, this kind of Sharia form of hijab offers us a kind of middle ground between a complete unveiling and a more customary, the more customary form. I would like to um, push a little bit on this the division about Islamist reformist and also like custom uh, discussion debates about hijab. Like, what's the source of custom? Because there's some sort of like uttering happening in this process that the modern intervention by basically referring to Sharia, what Sharia offers. But on the other hand, there is a kind of like an urban rural division or some sort of like temporality that has been attributed to what is customary and what is Sharia. So can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Do you see any sort of like a little bit more, more layered understanding of this division? Sure. So that's uh, that's a fascinating question. Um, I mean, it's it's a little bit hard to make that kind of rural-urban distinction in, in interwar Algeria because there's such massive rural to urban migration in that moment. And so, yes, it's true that many of these commentators are writing from bigger Algerian cities, but many of them move to those cities within their lifetime. Um, And so they're certainly familiar with rural Algeria. And this isn't necessarily a kind of case of, you know, generations and generations of elites who've never really, you know, encountered everyday people. You know, there isn't that kind of elitism that you might see in other spaces. But certainly, I mean, the, the Muslim reformist movement is coming out of uh, you know, Ben Badis, when he he travels to Egypt, he travels around the Muslim world. That's formative for him. Um, and he's kind of importing that back into Algeria. But one of the things that I noticed, I mean, so reading similar debates in the Egyptian press in the interwar period is that, and I'm, I just want to try this out on you and see if you found the same thing in Algeria, that the holding up of Sharia, of the law, um, as the kind of modern alternative is also a turn towards legal text as interpreted by male elites, or at least if not elites, male commentators, whereas custom is often attributed to backwards women who don't know what they're doing. Um, so, you know, I don't know if such this gets to some of your questions about kind of the politics of, you know, holding up the Sharia as the kind of modern option for the hijab, right, and not the customary practices that are presumably more varied and potentially more open to different interpretations by different people have authority there. I don't know if you find the same thing in inner Algeria. That's fascinating. Um, you know, actually, in the Algerian case, many of these writers who are proposing a turn towards this hijab of the Sharia are actually positioning it as something that would be more beneficial for women. They say, uh, you know, when things are left up to custom, men's jealousy, men's overprotectiveness, those are the kinds of logics that prevail. Um, and actually the Sharia is something that's appropriate to all times and places and allows for this kind of modern, more flexible um, style that would be beneficial for women as well. That's so interesting because it gets to such a, what you said earlier about different temporalities, right? That this is part of a push to establish the Sharia as the thing that is right for all times. Precisely. Whereas custom is very much like arrayed already on a kind of civilizational timeline that is the thing that needs to be left behind. So I think that's that's really interesting. Also some sort of uniformity, right? Like across time and across places, it's kind of like also pushing some, some sort of like an, a uniformity and, and standardization 
in a way by basically eliminating that customary practices that can be very various. This is still an argument among feminists. Do women benefit from standardization of the law or is actually the kind of flexibility and multi-temporality of custom actually offer some new freedom? So it's really interesting that that debate was happening in this time in inner war Algeria. So maybe you could tell us, you know, what were the, did you see any gender divisions between the commentators? I mean, what did, how did women participate in debates about hijab and was their position different from that of men? So there are a few places where women enter into these discussions. Uh, oftentimes that looks like letters to the editor written in that get published. But there's one woman in particular that offers a really kind of sophisticated analysis. Um, and her name is Jamila Debesh. So her kind of backstory is that she's from the Stif region of Algeria. Um, but when she was seven years old, she was orphaned. And so she moves with her grandmother and uncle to Nice, France. Uh, they were some kind of traders. So that already signifies their kind of elite status. And she lives, she kind of grows up a little bit in France. Um, by the age of 16, she's already publishing in different uh, French newspapers, writing about sports and things like that. Um, and at the age of 22, she writes into a francophone newspaper in Algeria, La Justice, and she writes in this kind of editorial about hijab. And what she argues is that hijab, broadly speaking, is not mandated by religion. And what's fascinating is she is able to kind of tap into this same mode of analysis that many of these uh, Algerian male commentators are doing, where she's pulling a lot from various source material. So in making her arguments, she cites the Quran, she cites Hadith, she cites the Sunnah, she cites Ibn Arabi. And she says, look, hijab is just a customary practice. And when we look back at these sources, uh, there's no evidence that this is mandated on women. And in addition to her editorial, or alongside her editorial, I should say, uh, La Justice publishes a picture of her, and she's completely unveiled. Um, and she's a kind of important figure in, in interwar Algeria and, and will become later as well, because in, in 1946, she founds her own uh, newspaper, L'Action, and that's one of the first newspapers, or actually the first newspaper uh, for specifically for Algerian women uh, and by an Algerian woman. And I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense because actually in, in both Egypt and Lebanon, I see something very similar where the, the question of the hijab and the kinds of modes of reasoning and modes of authority that are marshaled in debates about the hijab, for example, actually... I think kind of invite women writers and commentators into a kind of sphere of analytic re reasoning that had mostly in the press been, been the province of men. So because the question is the hijab, um, and it's a question that concerns women, is about women, it is also an opportunity for women to actually enter the pages of the press, marshalling some of these tools, you know, citing hadith, citing sunnah, um, and being, being read, and in this case, as you describe, even pictured, unveiled um, in this new kind of literary space or, or kind of intellectual space, which I think is really fascinating. Precisely. So we'll take a quick break here um, and we'll, we'll come back in the second part of the podcast uh, to deal with the question of men's headwear or the fez or tarbouche. So stay with us. So welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susie Ferguson. I'm here with my co-host Sechel Yilmaz and our guest Sarah Rahnama talking about hats and hijabs in interwar Algeria. Sarah, this is a fascinating conversation. And, and in your work, you're also looking at 
the other side, the flip side of the coin, where like discussions about men and men's dress codes and the debates about Fez and Tarbusha and and what it signifies in this particular historical moment, which is fascinating because as if the entire historiography kind of like focuses on women's bodies and hijab and morality and uh, state-making, nation-making through that angle, whereas actually gender as a useful category seems like actually pops up in this particular context and makes us like, made you focus on the debate about men's position. So can you tell us a little bit more about this debate that appeared in Algerian press about Fez? Sure. So um, in interwar Algeria, the decision to wear the Western style hat in particular, which I'll just henceforth call the hat, um, it, it becomes incredibly politically contentious. And part of this is that it becomes a means of critiquing assimilation for those who are against it. Uh, those who are against it see it as a way of kind of assimilating to European sartorial norms and as a way of kind of trying to pass as European. So they interpret it as to where the hat reflects a kind of shame in one's identity. Uh, one, one commenter even says it's, it's cowardly to try and pick the appearance or match the appearance of a people who will never accept you anyway. And this carries an enormous weight in the interwar moment in particular because there's more than ever Algerian men being educated in French schools, Algerian men participating as uh, working within the French colonial bureaucracy. So this fear of a kind of culture that's at in danger of being lost is very real in that moment. Um, and so much of that gets subsumed into these, these kind of debates about the hat. So are they advocating then instead of the Western style hat, are they advocating wearing either the fez, I mean, which maybe you can describe for our listeners what that looks like in Algeria. Is it the same as what we think of in the Ottoman context? And are they also adv- advocating wearing the, is it the imama, the turban? So, it, you know, it's interesting. They they each kind of have their own power. Because the fez was the more, or the tarbush was the more kind of dominant hat form, uh, that becomes what must, much of this conversation focuses on. Um, but both become kind of, both the imama and the fez become reflective of a longer history. And the weight of history is incredibly important in these in these discussions. Um, so they get connected to this, this history of pre-colonialism. And that's part of the reason that they need to be upheld and they need to be part of a kind of national culture. Um, so m- most of it centers around the tarbush and the, the way that the tarbush kind of sets apart Algerians from Europeans. And it's mostly religious figures who continue to wear the imama. So to wear the imama signifies your institutional affiliation or your intellectual affiliation to a particular exactly, tradition. Exactly. Um, and, and the Im- really important distinction here uh, with the hijab and the reason I think it's so important to bring these dialogues um, together and think about them in tandem is that within the discussions of the hijab, as we saw, custom was something that needed to be abandoned. Whereas within the discussion of men's headwear, custom is what offers national cohesion. So it's what's necessary for the survival of a people, particularly, you know, a century into colonial occupation. That's fascinating and kind of like reminds me a detail for my own work. I, I look at the um, uh, medical students who goes in, in the Ottoman Empire 19th century, century context, they go to Paris and there is an academy there that they study um, in that school in Paris and they come back as the experts and one of the rules of the school is that um, Ottoman students has to go around the city in their own uh, uniforms that 
that is basically they have to wear the fez and so that becomes like a big disciplinary issue mm. that a lot of students are actually violating that rule and in, in the end the school is closed because it was too expensive to maintain a school in Paris even though there were very few numbers of students but they had to go in street that was an, an a kind of like an, um, an embarrassment for um, those uh, young Ottoman students in Paris this is like mid 19th century so what you're saying and in, in this example also kind of like reflects that even though we kept thinking and discussing the question of nation and its development its modernity through women's appearance it seems like what you're doing in this context is very like it's complicating the ways in which we theorize and try to understand the imagery and its implications about nation making vis-a-vis its relationship to masculinity Absolutely. And the role of custom is really pivotal here. I think in multiple other colonial contexts, it's women who are the kind of bearers of custom. Men are allowed to enjoy new forms of education, new forms of consumption. Um, and yet even as the dialogues around women, around women, women's education intensify in the 20th century, that education is still framed in ways that will benefit the nation, that will involve kind of upholding tradition. Uh, whereas in this Algerian context, this interwar context, um, women's comportment is allowed to be sort of modified and modernized, uh, whereas it's men who bear that burden of upholding the tradition for the sake of, of national cohesion. And I just think that's, you know, I want to highlight to any of our listeners who are doing research or thinking about doing research on women and gender in the Arab or Middle Eastern worlds that I think this is a very fruitful direction to consider the questions of Um, the sort of aesthetics of modernity out of nation building, not as questions that are only about the hijab or that can be fully fleshed out only by considering the appearance of women and the regulation of women's bodies, right? It's also regulating men, um, creating new forms of custom, new forms of aesthetic behavior uh, that signify the nation or signify a coherent past. Also social divisions, right? Like class division. So it's basically, it's in, an, in a particular political context that's something happening and it's beyond the discursiveness of this moment. It's kind of like reorganizing the societal la- la- layers and divisions through that so that I mean dress code and its history is also very much embedded. Absolutely and we can think here of the work of people like Sabah Mahmoud and others who have reminded us that when you wear a hijab or when you wear a tarbouche you're not simply signifying something but you're also embodying and taking physical part in a political project so I just I think that's really interesting. So maybe we could turn in the last part of the podcast then to the sort of transnational connections that you hinted at earlier Sarah. So Um, You mentioned the passage of the hat law in Turkey, and I think it was 1925, and how this kind of resonated in the Algerian context. Um, So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how did Algerians see what was happening in Turkey, um, and why was Turkey such an important model? Absolutely. So my work in general thinks a lot about transnational models and the weight of those transnational models for Algerians uh, in the interwar moment. And Turkey, um, Iran, Afghanistan... The kind of secularizing leaders there uh, become a really important reference for Algerians, in part because they're so impressed by what these leaders are able to achieve, particularly in terms of economic and political independence from Europe. Uh, That's really one of the reasons that both kind of secular-minded Francophone Algerian elites as well as Muslim reformist elites are so fascinated by 
Ataturk and what he's able to achieve. I mean, some of the Arabic language newspapers feature articles about Turkey in every single issue. And that's how that there was a real kind of public thirst for information about what was happening there. Um, and that's not to say that everyone was was on board. I mean, there's certainly kind of critical responses and they say, oh, the Kemalist project is really just taking us towards atheism and this is not the solution. This is not the direction that the Ummah should be going in. Um, but overwhelmingly, there there's a real um, sense of pride in what Turkey is able to achieve. You get commentators writing about uh, you know, this is the first time that Eastern nations are able to be free from the shackles of European domination before Europe had us by our necks. And this is our um, this is our chance to to be be a modern nation, enjoy what modern nations enjoy. So many interpret the decision to wear a Western style hat as is a statement of allegiance, not just to European sartorial norms, but also to this kind of emerging world order. And so at this, while you have, you know, some commentators who are very critical of the decision to wear the hat and they say, oh, you know, but it's the Amama and the Tarbush that are connected to our historical past as Muslims. You have other commentators who are also using that language of history um, and thinking about Ataturk as a kind of new Muslim leader. So they write about, for example, um, how the Umayyads had their own style of amama. Then when the Abbasids came, there was a kind of triangle, taller type turban that people wore. Oh, the Muslims of Andalusia had their own style of hat. And so there was this feeling that Ataturk was actually not, you know, betraying this, this history of Muslim greatness, but ushering in a new era of Muslim greatness. Which I think might surprise some of our listeners in Turkey today, potentially, where <laughs> you know, Ataturk is presented perhaps in a kind of different... Um, more authoritarian. And, and part of the reason is also like um, the hat, quote-unquote, revolution hasn't been like received happily from every segment of the society. It, it also had been a, a lot of uh, pushbacks and resistance, and that it just comes out once in a while like a sparking uh, moment and when whenever Kemalist criticisms has surfaced in today's modern Turkish politics, this the hat revolution as being this like enforced measure mm, for like an, a you know sort of disciplinary move on the part right. of the state to tell men, as far as I understand, that they had to wear a Western style hat. Right, as as a response to actually religion, as a as it was a, a response to conservative Islamist um, circles at that time. So that's kind of like an, an, a very uh, controversial. Yeah, um, which is super fascinating. Again, you know, as we think about today, we see pictures of French policemen on the beach telling Muslim women what they can and can't wear. But actually, that this as a state practice goes back much further and has impacted men as well as women in certain moments. Right. Absolutely. And that's part of what makes the context of interwar Algeria an interesting place to think about these questions, because there really isn't some state-led process that's happening. In fact, it's, it, it kind of um, offers us a way to think about how the regulatory power of laws can travel across borders, even into spaces where those laws don't enforce people's comportment. So in closing, I just want to ask you one last kind of big picture question. We often think of transnationality in the history of the Middle East as being a question of things coming from the West and arriving in the Muslim world and being transformed, right? But you're telling a very different story where actually the West figures kind of in the background, really. You're highlighting the connections between places like Turkey and interwar Algeria 
um, as really being kind of important to our study of the history of this period. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how drawing out these kind of South-South connections that don't pass through Europe can change the way that we think about studying the colonial world. One of the things that my work tries to do more broadly is just think about how intellectual movements move across spaces in ways that often transcend the boundaries that are erected by empire. So, and that's not to suggest that empire isn't important. Obviously it is, and the ways that Algerians are thinking through the things they're reading about Turkey, other spaces in the Middle East is profoundly influenced by their experience as colonial subjects. But it's also to say that there are other kinds of references, other ways of thinking, other modes of knowledge uh, that don't necessarily kind of neatly fit into this kind of uh, colonialism or resistance to colonialism framework. And so what I think these discussions about the hat and the hijab and and especially thinking about them in tandem, what it allows us to do is think about um, the ways different norms, different ideas kind of transcend this world of either being, um, you know, adherence to or resistance to colonial norms. It's, it's just much, much more complicated than that. Well, that's a great note to end on for all the historians in our audience, that things are much more complex than they initially <laughs> appeared. But I think in this case, you know, we really have seen a couple of different axes through which that's the case. Um, and I know for myself, you know, even as I consider my own reading of similar texts moving forward, this has been really helpful as presenting kind of in a way, two new models for thinking about um, not just gender or fashion in the Middle East, but actually thinking about the relationship between places like Turkey and Algeria in the interwar period and, and beyond. So I just want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you both for having me. This has been fun. And for those in our audience who want to find out more, you can keep your eyes peeled for Sarah's forthcoming work, and we'll put it up there when it, when it comes out. And we will also post a bibliography for this episode on www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. We invite you to leave comments, questions, suggestions, ideas. And please also feel free to join us on Facebook, where we stay in touch with our community of now over 30,000 listeners and post news about upcoming series and episodes. So that's all for this episode. Until next time, take care.